Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello everyone, and welcome to The History of England, episode 109. So, where are we then? We've had a different subject than war for a change for a few weeks, but good to see we're still focused on death and destruction. Chaos, mayhem and despair. This week, let us up the chronological pace a bit and look at the period between the fall of Calais in 1347 and the renewal of general war with France. We're going to start with a bit of war, I'm ashamed to admit. It was Philip who decided to break the truce, burning with pain and fury at the loss of Calais. As I think we've observed, getting into an unfriendly castle wasn't easy, and treachery was often the best way, if not in the highest tradition of honour and chivalry. Now, in 1349, a French commander, Geoffrey de Charny, found himself a man to bribe inside Calais, a Genoese captain called Aymeric, who was living in the town. Dechani offered Aymeric the stonking sum of 6,000 quid. Now, Aymeric at some point got cold feet or had an attack of conscience, and he wrote a letter to Edward. Had I been Edward at this point, I'd have breathed a huge sigh of relief, given Aymeric a big kiss and some free luncheon vouchers, and that would have been that. But not Edward. He saw an opportunity to have some fun rubbing French noses in the dirt and get a bit of father-son bonding going on into the bargain. So what we get is this elaborate scheme where Edward keeps the pretense going. He secretly hops over to Calais with his son, the Prince of Wales, 
who's 19 now, and he takes some Gartenites with him. These guys included, as it happens, a chap called Roger Mortimer. You'll remember the name from the tyrant Edward destroyed at the start of his reign. And his descendants are working hard to rid the family of his father's besmirching of the name, and actually, they're doing a pretty good job. The young Mortimer has shown off his talents at Cressy, has been made a garter knight, so the family is well back on the road to recovery. Plus, of course, no war party would have been complete without Walter Manny, rather shockingly not yet a garter knight, though he will be made up in 1359. So, it's late night at Calais. Nothing stirs. There's no sound except the sound of Jean de Vienne's old pony chuckling in his stable. There's a quiet knock at one of the postern gates. Americk slips quietly through the dark and holds back the heavy door. No sound from the heavily greased hinges. Outside, Geoffrey de Charney and a few brave men are waiting. Americk lets them in and leads them up to a room. But as de Charney goes into the room, horror of horrors, there's a grim knight in full armour. The grim knight seems to have partially forgotten his briefing because he lets out an ear-spitting bellow, money, money to the rescue, and charges forward with his sword raised. Then he looks a bit confused and bellows, what, do they hope to conquer Calais with so few? Someone off left says, not now, Manny, drags him aside, and the advance party are locked up. And now Edward has the false signals raised the OK to Geoffrey de Charney's main party waiting outside. Edward and his pals crouch behind a specially built false wall inside the postern gate. In come the party of French warriors, and suddenly the fight is on. Someone probably said, OK, now, Manny. And there's an ear-splitting bellow of, Manny, Manny to the rescue! Edward was fighting as an unmarked knight. The French are, of course, taken by surprise and overpowered. That should have been that, but with a rush of blood to the head, Edward gets on a horse and with 30 others and a few archers, charges out to find the rest of the French army and give them a piece of his mind. Unfortunately, he finds them. 800 of them. Ah, oops. Now, who knows if all of this is true, but it's good stuff. Were I faced with odds of 20 to 1, I would, of course, run away. Or at least try to look very small, insignificant and not worth bothering with. Edward, on the other hand, popped his archers on the flanks, then stood in the middle, pulled up his visor so there can be no mistake who he is, and yells, Edward and St George! So the story of Edward III could have been so different. But as it happens, the Prince of Wales was on it, arrived in the nick of time with reinforcements, and a bunch more Frenchmen were captured, Calais saved, and another stone placed onto the monument that would be the legend of Edward and his son, the Black Prince. Though interestingly, we are almost at the end of the story of Edward the Great Warrior King, or at least in the sense of his personal exploits. He will begin to step back. In terms of great victories, there's one more, the Battle of Winchelsea, but that's got to be the least convincing, actually. So let's talk about that. So, the truce had not stopped the war at sea. A group of about 40 Castilian galleys continued to work the channel for the French and take out English shipping. Until on the 29th of August, Edward's specially constructed task force of English ships 
managed to intercept them off the coast at Winchelsea. The resulting battle was a nasty business. The Castilian ships were much bigger than the English, like a castle to a cottage, in the words of a chronicler. Edward's own ship almost sank beneath him, and the English took hideous casualties as they tried to get in close and grapple. The result was probably a victory, in that the Castilians that were engaged were beaten, but plenty escaped. Plenty were not engaged at all. The clincher is that the victory did absolutely zip to stop the Castilian piracy. So in 1351, for example, a chancery clerk couldn't get any ships to take him over to Calais, and eventually got there in a rowing boat. After Winchelsea, we don't see Edward in battle again, although he has two more campaigns to run. Maybe he just gets used to the more luxurious life he's now leading, and just loses the bug. Maybe at 38 he decided it was time to hang up the golden gauntlet. Maybe he decided to hand over to his son. Or indeed, maybe having a ship sinking under you while in full armour is a life-changing experience. Whatever. Edward now more and more becomes a warrior by proxy. By and large, the end of the truce doesn't restart the war. In terms of large-scale armies wandering over the countryside, and Philip and Edward basically decide to pretend the raid on Calais never happened. David of Scotland and Charles of Blois are behind bars. So there is an attempt to hold a truce. Part of the reason for this may have been a lack of money. Or maybe inclination. Maybe Edward had had enough of fighting for the moment and wanted to chill. Or maybe it was the plague. Or it may be that in the interminable negotiations that now go on, sponsored by the Pope, Edward thought he was going to get close enough to his war aims. And for a while, that does seem to be possible. Which raises an interesting point, of course, of what Edward really did want. It's unlikely, even at the height of his success, that he thought he was going to be King of France. The bottom line was to get Aquitaine back with the same territory as Edward I, but on the terms that John had held it, i.e. in full sovereignty, not held from the King of France. Oh, and Calais was now English, so forget that too. But anything extra would be bunce. It's the sovereignty thing that would become completely intractable over the years. Despite the general truce, in France a very real and very nasty war continues. And in fact, the general story from 1347 to 55 is of a scrappy, low-level, dirty war with local conflicts, the odd bigger affair, brief truces which were badly observed, and a rash of fortune hunters beginning to gnaw at the body of the French state. In the north, one of the invariables of the first ten year finally changed. Count Louis took Flanders firmly back into the French camp. The denouement came in January 1349 when Louis's men fought their way to the centre of Ghent and destroyed the power of the cloth workers, including hacking off the limbs of the captain of the weavers and finishing him off in a public square. Bruges and Ypres had already given in. Edward had been unable or unwilling to help, and that valuable alliance was now firmly ended. In Brittany, with Charles de Blois behind bars, the French essentially lost interest, apart from some support in terms of money and men. And so it was Charles's wife, Jean de Pontievre, who carried on the fight. 
and the truth is that Edward also didn't have the financial oomph to finish things off. In England, everyone kind of assumed that that was it now. They'd won Calais, time for a taxation breather. Jeanne and her party kept things going, mainly in the east of Brittany, holding the big towns of Rennes and Nantes and the north coast. The English controlled most of the rest, and now centred their power on Brest, right at the west end of the peninsula, which, being a superb harbour, now acquired an impressive fortress to boot. But again, without a major push and expense, Edward couldn't finish things off. And so, between 1347 and 58, the English effort is essentially given over to a procession of military entrepreneurs. One of these was Thomas Dagworth, as he'd expect. But even with his great reputation, he had to get his own cash together. And so we get the word patty entering our story. What happens is that these semi-licensed captains have to live off the land. So they set up shop in a locality and charge what is essentially protection money. It draws in all kinds of lowlife to France, who for a brief period get to be rich and walk tall if he survived long enough to tell the tale. Probably people like Dagworth would have liked things on a more formal setting and to be paid by the English crown, but essentially he had no choice either. All of this meant that his control of his lieutenants was very weak. After all, they weren't being paid by the English king and they were extorting money from their own locality. During this period, we see the start of the careers of a number of Edward's captains. Probably you won't remember all these names immediately, and I know the procession of names is something of a problem I haven't cracked yet, but we'll keep repeating them, so hopefully you'll get the hang of them after time. So, the first one I'll mention is Hugh Calverley. Calverley is a big, powerful man of great personal courage and leadership, who consistently commanded the loyalty of his men. His weakness tended to be that he was very impulsive. But anyway, he was a minor landowner in Cheshire who one day put together a band of 15 mates to go and seek their fortune in Brittany. And over the next three decades, his fortune would grow. He would find himself hobnobbing with the very highest in Europe, kings and princesses in Spain, England and France, and ended up marrying an Aragonese princess. Not bad for a small Cheshire squire. He was buried in a place called Bunbury, which is a name in its own way every bit as funny as Pratt's Bottom, and a surprisingly busy place historically for a village of 1,300 souls. And am I wrong in thinking it could be the genesis of Oscar Wilde's imaginary character? Or not, anyway. Anyway, Calverley was joined by another giant, Robert Knowles. Knowles would become one of the most feared English captains of his generation. He started even lower down the social order than Calverley, his family being described as poor and undistinguished yeoman. And in fact, he probably started his career as an archer. He also came from Cheshire and could well be related to Calverley. Knowles appeared in the 1347 battle at La Roche d'Arienne, a small, taciturn but strong man whose career as a professional soldier would again make him rich. This humble yeoman will be buried with great pomp at Whitefriars in London. And his career started in Brittany. By 1352, he controlled a range of castles in the east of the dukedom. So one day, Thomas Dagworth was travelling in Brittany with only a small escort. 
when he was ambushed by a man called Raoul de Cor, a previous sacked leader of the Montfortist cause, out to get his revenge. Of course, Dagworth's view was that he couldn't lose and odds of ten to one were chicken feed, but on this occasion it wasn't to be. Raoul wasn't going to enjoy his success, unfortunately, and would be dead at the hands of Breton pirates a year later. But with the death of Dagworth, the English needed a new leader, and the new leader was from God's own county, otherwise known as Yorkshire. Walter Bentley was his name, another fortune hunter, another who made his fortune in France, and another who showed himself to be an aggressive and talented strategist and commander. As evidence of this, in the early 1350s, rather than getting bogged down in a local war in Brittany, he launched successful raids into Men and the Loire Valley to the east, causing chaos and distraction to the French defence. This pattern of Patti and fortune hunters spread into the southwest, where Gascon raids constantly challenged and distracted French defences. It's not that the French didn't try to do something about it. In between truces there were major campaigns into the Saintonge and into Poitou and into Perigord. So despite the chaos of Patti and fortune hunters, between 1349 and 55, the story is probably one of mounting pressure on English positions, since Edward refused to raise a major army and campaign. The most coordinated English response came from Henry of Lancaster, who renewed his raids, seeking to force the French to the negotiating table and to enforce a proper truce. In 1349, this took him southeast, all the way to Toulouse. The following year, all the places that he had captured were recaptured by the French, but in the meantime, his raid had brought chaos and dislocation. The garrisons he had left for a year had terrorised their localities before finally being winkled out. Then in 1351, Walter Bentley launched another raid along the Loire Valley while Manny raided northern France and burned a lot of houses, though achieved not much else. On the other hand, a raid in June 1351 by the Earl of Warwick from Calais ended in disaster. They were overwhelmed by a French force and the Earl of Huntingdon had to hurry over to Calais to fill the gap in the garrison. Eventually, a truce was signed in September 1351, but the war kept going on through the Irregulars. In all this chaos, if you want to read it, there are lots of tales of Daring Do, the fodder for books by G.A. Henty and the romantic novels. I'm not going to tell them, sadly, but if you do want to read them, go to Jonathan Sumption's book on the Hundred Years' War. It's all in there. I'll mention just one, for illustrative purposes. A man called Jean de Grailly, the Captal de Bouche, whose name you will hear again, captured a wall town called Saint-Antonin and used it as a base for raids throughout southwest France. Froissart wrote... No knight was more celebrated, nor Gascony, and none was more feared by the French for the audacity of his deeds. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
Let's be clear about the chaos these kinds of garrisons caused, deeply embedded thorns in the French side. You might remember that in 1345, Lancaster had captured Lusignan. In the four years that went by until Lusignan was finally retaken by the French, the garrison laid waste 52 parishes, destroyed 10 monasteries and launched raids throughout southwest Poitou. The general story I want to leave with you is of parts of western France beginning to slide into chaos, where France had become a land of opportunity for violent Englishmen who go and carve out a fortune with the sword. To make this come to life a bit, imagine yourself as a Frenchman living in a village out of the way and watching a party of armed and brutal murderers appear in your village, burn everything you own, rape your daughters, carry off anything of any value. And really there's nothing you can do about it. It's a lot like the Viking period. By the time the local count has raised the levers, the marauders are gone, back to the safety of their castle. Another event worth mentioning is the Battle of the Thirty, which I've mentioned before, an absolutely nutty event to the modern ear. A Frenchman called Jean de Bourmanois organised an arranged battle with an Englishman called Bram Bourque in Brittany. On the 26th of March 1351, they all arrived and set to. Now these are not just random knights, young idiots out to make a name with more testosterone than sense. These are the big boys, Thomas Dagworth, Calverley, Knowles. The battle went on for several hours. This is a juste à l'outrance, à l'extrême, proper weapons and all that. The whole thing took place in front of entranced or horrified spectators. And by the half-time and the drinks break with those little segments of orange, two English and four French lay dead. Then off they went again and set to, and Brambroke was killed so the English formed a defensive position which, try as they might, the French could not break. At length, a French squire mounted his horse and charged into the English line, breaking it up, and that was it. A French victory that saw six French dead and more English. It is barking mad, but magnificent in its way, a completely different attitude to war that saw the event repeated and celebrated by poets in both France and England. In 1351, Philip VI died unlamented. The last years of his reign were marked by massive criticism, which unusually was aimed straight at him, rather than the normal formula of criticising his ministers. He was deeply estranged from his son John by this stage, which is understandable on John's part. When Philip's wife, Joan, had died of the plague, he took his son John's betrothed, the 19-year-old Blanche, for his own wife. Both awkward and ooh. One of his final acts, though, was the purchase of an area called the Dauphiné in the southeast of France, and traditionally hereafter, the heir to the throne will be given this area as their own personal land, and therefore the heir to the throne becomes known as the Dauphin. Like the arrival of a new football manager, John arrived in a blaze of optimism, and he looked the part, a little delicate maybe, but impressive, brave, gracious and generous. Sadly, he was to prove no Einstein, and had inherited his father's paranoia, and in the words of Foissart, he made his opinions too quickly, and held on to them for too long. He was to prove malleable in the hands of stronger characters, leading to drifts and distractions in policy. And by 1352, the honeymoon was already over. One of the reasons for this was yet another remarkable victory at Morin in Brittany, 
Here the new English leader, Walter Bentley, found himself caught in open ground by the French army of around 5,000. Bentley had something only like 1,500, so there was clearly something of a challenge going on. Bentley managed to find a slope and went for the classic English formation, archers on the wings, men-at-arms in the centre, but being an open ground, the French commander was pretty confident that the guy was toast. So the French drew up in good order, mainly dismounted, but some cavalry on their left, where the slope was much shallower. And the classic English plan seemed to have failed when at four in the afternoon the French cavalry charged the archers on the English right and instead of getting cut to pieces, they made it all the way to the line and the archers legged it. So now the killing field was only covered by one flank of archers. And with the attack of the French men-at-arms, it looked very, very bad for Bentley, especially when he was badly injured. It was hand-to-hand, man-to-man, and the French men-at-arms had an enormous advantage of numbers. But then relief came when the archers on the left took a risk and went offensive, charging forward and firing into the French flank. Before long, some of the French fled, actually the section led by the hero of the Battle of the Thirty, as it happens, Pont Manoir, and the battle turned to rout. The archers on the left were heroes, and Bentley had 30 of those on the right beheaded for cowardice. Another interesting little wrinkle on the battle was the fate of 89 of the French army. Inspired by Edward's Garter Knights, King John had set up his own chivalry order, the Order of the Star. Unfortunately, he pushed it just a little bit too far. One of the stipulations of the order was that no member of the Star should ever retreat. Given that France was to suffer quite a few more defeats, this was to prove expensive. But with yet another defeat, John's reputation was now already tarnished. And so everything was in place in France for the nightmare that was Charles of Navarre. Oakley dokley, let's turn away from the war for just a while, as indeed Edward has done. There are a few themes through these years. Partying is one of them, I might say, but I think we've covered the parties well enough. But really what we're seeing is Edward basking in his glory and a reputation that was transformed. He now had a genuinely European reputation. Gone was the slightly patronising sneering at his grand claims, which to that point had been backed only by disaster and failure. He's actually offered the title of Holy Roman Emperor around this time, which he has the good sense to decline, since that way led a massive expense and pain. So instead, in his court, he basked. One factor of this basking was a pretty substantial building programme. The problem is that for such a long-serving and generally successful monarch, Edward hasn't left a lot for us to remember him by. The big one is Windsor Castle, on which he spent 50,000 quid, a massive investment then, of course. Much of it is difficult to see, though, with the exception of St George's Chapel. Here is the spiritual home of the Order of the Garter, and over the next 18 years, there was consistent work going on at Windsor. There were many other works commissioned elsewhere, but so little has survived. He had something of a passion for technology, did Edward. The latest word, in whatever it was, appealed to him. So in his bathrooms, he sported taps, one for hot and one for cold, which for the time is very grand indeed. He's also the man credited with one of the oldest mechanical clocks. The very earliest evidence of such a thing is in 1335 in Milan, but we know that in 1352 he has one installed in Windsor, definitely the first in England. 
Now then, Edward has been criticised for spinelessness in the face of pressure from his Parliament, and the 1350s provide much of the grist for this critical mill. Because what we see is a tide of legislation, all of it or most of it initiated by the Commons of Parliament, rather than by the King, through the process of the Commons presenting their petitions or bills to the King. One bit of legislation that did come from the King, though, was the Statute of Treason, put together in 1352. It's an odd bit of legislation for a king that had by and large distinguished himself by not laying about him, as had Edward I and Edward II, accusing people of treason. But it's possible that the belated trials of some of his father's murderers brought it back to his mind. The statute of treason basically described two types of treason. High treason against the king, his immediate heirs, ministers or seal, and those provisions are still in force today. Or petty treason, which is the murder of one's lawful superior, and this one was repealed in 1828. I've popped the statute up on the documents in English History site, should anybody be interested. This slew of legislation in 1351-3 is despite the fact that Edward, by and large, appeared by now to be avoiding calling parliaments if he could, The frequency of parliaments had certainly slowed since 1341 and he makes a slightly feeble attempt at one point to pass off a particular parliament as a great council and therefore to be able to take quite a lot of liberties with the way he ran it. But he's not allowed to get away with that one. But when parliament was called, the period is notable for the way that the commons began to become just that, the commons, i.e. one body that acted together. Previously, there's just been a load of individual townsmen or knights, each bringing their own petition and each having their own conversations. But now, very often, the Commons brings a joint petition, presented on behalf of all of them. Not only did this speak of a new unity of the Commons, but it also began to speak of a separation between Commons and Lords. And so now we begin to see on odd occasions that the Commons might bring a common petition which is directed against the magnates. So the Commons in 1351-53 to presented a number of demands. They wanted the wool staple brought back from Flanders because it forced them to go abroad and buy back wool that they might just as well buy in England. They wanted to stop the papal courts dealing with any matters that touched on English benefices in the church. They wanted regulation of the Gascon wine trade, the granting of pardons, the sale of cloth. Basically, there was a full legislative programme. Edward granted them all, and in so doing, earned this reputation as something of a pushover. A man who allowed the rights of the crown to be weakened. But generally speaking, the picture we've built up is of a king who managed to maintain good relationships with the body politic, without alienating any powers that were in any way essential. Sure, Parliament evolves during this reign, but bear a few things in mind. Firstly, it's clearly established through Edward's reign that in a state of emergency, such as a time of war, Parliament had no right to refuse taxation. Secondly, the principle is maintained that taxation in a Parliament is granted first, and only then does Parliament bring forward petitions for the King to consider. The Commons try to make this work the other way round, actually, during his reign, i.e. have the petition first, and then vote on taxation, but they don't get away with that. And this is important. So, 
Think about it. The commons coming and saying to the king, look, grant me what I want and then maybe I'll give you some money. Gives the commons significantly more power than, I've given you a load of money, so now will you please be nice to me and give me my petitions. And thirdly, in terms of actual implementation, Edward and his ministers remain the ones who actually make the final decision about how everything gets implemented. The currency is a good example. Despite opposition, the gold currency is introduced. The Commons is firmly convinced that the right approach is to keep the silver content of the existing currency the same to avoid inflation. But in fact, Edward goes ahead and orders a devaluation. So when it comes down to it, it's Edward who makes the final executive decisions. In the main, then, the principles behind royal power are maintained. As in many reigns, things shuffle a little forward to greater democratisation. So now we have a common speaking as one, and we can see how that will be important. But Edward's reign, by and large, supports the argument that the slow development of parliamentary democracy in England is not the result of a constant struggle between king and people. In general... Government is a partnership, and processes and procedures simply change slowly as time change. The view that the commons are desperately locked in a consistent and constant power struggle with the throne is deeply wrong. The commons were innately conservative, and they were often as concerned as the king was to preserve royal authority and power. Now then, that was a little bit more manageable lengthwise. Next week, we're going to introduce a character called Charles of Navarre, encouragingly known as Charles the Bad. We're going to talk a bit about diplomacy and take us to the edge of 1356, another one of those memorable dates in English history. Before I go, a couple of things. I've stopped my weekly sign-off thank you, because it does come a bit like wallpaper, but that doesn't mean I'm not eternally grateful for all you contributors and commentators out there. I had occasion to go on the Australian iTunes site, for example, the other day and read some comments there. And thanks very much to all of you. And then thank you to some donators this week, Russell, Warren and Kirk. Thank you very much for your generosity. Great. Good to see you all. See you next week and good luck. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.